that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca, available always as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, here with you for the next hour. On the program, we'll be hearing from renowned urban scholar John Friedman as he reflects on urbanization in Asia and what we're to make of the extent and significance of rapid urbanization across a diversity of state and regional contexts across the continent. That and much more on the program. Stay with me. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Looking for a reason to 
Uh, new track from Hooded Fang, based out of Toronto, Ontario. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and uh, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's uh, CJSF in Burnaby. And also coming to you um, from iTunes and uh, thecityfm.org as a podcast. Lots of ways to listen. On the program today, we're going to be hearing from uh, John Friedman, and he is uh, Honorary Professor at the School of Community and Regional Planning at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, and uh, Professor Emeritus at the School of Public Policy and Social Research at uh, the University um, or at, at UCLA. He's also the founding professor of the program for urban planning um, at UCLA, and uh, that's where he served as head of the program uh, between 1969 and 1996. And uh, he's a prolific scholar. Um, He's written 16 books, um, 11 co-edited books, and more than 150 chapters, articles, and reviews around planning, theory, um, urbanization, economic change, um, urban and spatial restructuring, and, and many, many themes. Uh, and some of his most recent books, uh, The Prospect of Cities and China's Urban Transition, and uh, his um, very well-known and uh, very uh, uh, highly cited article um, is called uh, The World City Hypothesis, and really laid down a new uh, uh, way to think about um, what we refer to today as global cities or world cities. Uh, And he um, has been, uh, that's been one of his main uh, research areas and um, uh, very renowned for that work, um, something like 2,000 citations, which is in the social sciences uh, uh, almost unheard of. So um, very, very well regarded. Um, and we're going to be hearing from uh, John Friedman um, from the 2013 inaugural seminar, Becoming Urban in Asia, Toward a Research and Policy Agenda. And it was uh, co-sponsored by um, the Comparative Comparative Urban Studies Network and the Asian Urbanisms uh, Cluster, and it was held at the Liu Institute for Global Issues uh, here at the University of British Columbia, and that was on uh, February 27th um, of 2013. And I just want to read from uh, the uh, sort of the background to this talk um, from uh, the Liu Institute. And uh, they write, The first half of the 21st century is anticipated to be a period of continuing large-scale urbanization in the developing world, with much of this occurring in Asian countries, especially China and India. This fundamental, ongoing change in Asia presents, on the one hand, prospects for economic prosperity, new visions of an urban future, and the potential for local democratization, and on the other, challenges of increasing economic and social inequities increased resource consumption, and environmental degradation. Underlying all of these problems and possibilities are fundamental research challenges for scholars to consider. One such challenge has arisen out of the problematic of the conceptual languages or conceptual language that the field of urban studies, quote-unquote, has inherited from the preceding century. At its core, one finds a number of oppositions that have been central in constructing our understanding of the urban. In these, the city has been opposed to the country, the urban, to the rural, the city, to the suburb, and so on. The assumptions underlying these oppositions are called into question by current urbanization processes that draw areas lying well beyond the peripheries of metropolitan agglomerations into the urban scheme. One might also include in this problematic a set of other oppositions in thinking about Asian urbanization, developed 
underdeveloped, planned, unplanned, legal, illegal, or formal, informal. Such oppositions tend to reinforce the hierarchical ordering of cities that have been implicit in the field of urban studies over the last century and that underpins the envisioning of a modern urban future for Asian cities in the image of global or world city. This vision, however, can also be seen to complicate matters by limiting the scope for considering alternative futures for urban Asia. The problematic thus challenges us to consider in fundamental terms the nature of comparison in urban studies. The, this inaugural seminar brings together four UBC faculty members to provide their thoughts on the urban future of Asia, broadly defined, and thus what might constitute an appropriate research and policy agenda for Asian urbanization and urbanism. And on today's program here on The City, uh, we're going to be hearing um, solely from John Friedman uh, from the School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. And uh, that's going to be about uh, 40 minutes um, of him discussing and working through some of these issues and really uh, at a very fundamental level talking about um, what constitutes the urban and uh, bringing the context of urbanization uh, in Asia um, into our understanding of what the urban is and who gets to call something urban. Um, Really, whose urban imaginary, as he says, is it? This is Professor John Friedman. I want to speak to three questions today. First, the language of urban research, or more precisely, when we speak of the urban, what is it we mean? Second, when doing research, especially in Asia, why should peri-urban zones command our attention? And third, whose imaginary of the city counts? I conclude with some reflections on urban research in Asia by both Western and indigenous Asian scholars. It is said that we live in an urban age. The phrase has become a cliché. But what does it mean? In a recent paper on planetary urbanism, Neil Brenner of Harvard and Christian Schmidt of the um, (coughs) Technical University in Zurich launched a blistering attack on the rural urban dichotomy counting heads, population densities, and the lit-up globe at night all suggest some form of urbanity that has burst through its territorial limits. And yet, while putting dots on a map, we still cling to the outdated notions of the city. But according to Brenner and Schmidt, what we still refer to as city is an untheorized phenomenon constructed by statisticians. And according to them, and according to the the authors, it is a chaotic concept. And I would agree. What they are after is a new and theoretically grounded language of the urban on a planetary scale. What does this new urban look like? Here are some numbers produced by statisticians. Without being too precise, the data are posted on official websites and arbitrarily bounded 
the scale is by any def definition huge. In Lagos of 8 million, in Cairo of 10 million, in Istanbul of 15 million, in Mumbai of 20, in Chongqing of 30 million, in Tokyo of 35, and all of them still growing at top rates. These places are no longer cities in any conventional sense, but vast assemblages of human settlement that are the demographic size of some mid-sized countries. Metropolitan Lagos is larger than Scotland, Tokyo larger than all of Canada. But of course, counting on the heads, these numbers don't even begin to tell us how these monster places are to be understood as urban and indeed as places, and how they can be managed, never mind rationally planned. In one aspect of their conceptualization, Renner and Schmidt encourage us to think of certain essential characteristics that we generally associate with the term urban, and also that they configure the urban in some quantifiable way. But let's be clear about one thing. Even if we could dispense with boundaries as we attempt to quantify the urban, and every boundary we recall is drawn in our heads more than on the ground, the urban is an inherently spatial concept, part of the Earth's human geography. We therefore have to deal not only with defining what we mean by the urban, but also deal with the urban's counter-concept, the spaces that lie beyond it, and which by common consent are called rural. But the rural, of course, is, equally, is an equally chaotic concept. So let us begin to think of some measurable criteria that would allow us to pinpoint whatever we think of as inherently urban in the 21st century. As an aside, the time period chosen for this exercise is important. What used to be called essentially urban in the past, thinking from Babylon on up to our own times, has varied enormously. Let me throw out a few terms for your consideration. Year-round accessibility, uh, time-distance thresholds to critical urban services, jobs, and administrative centers, a given proportion of income derived from production in the secondary, tertiary, and quaternary sectors, reliable year-round electric power, the number of computers and television receivers per thousand households, high levels of education for women and men, invested capital per unit area, and similar criteria on which most of us would hopefully agree as representing today's urban. Preferably, the number of criteria should be kept small, but they must be sufficient to allow us to differentiate among degrees of the urban continuum. Such a list suggests to me that we might want to think of the urban not so much as a settlement space or some form of the built environment, but as varied assemblages of certain measurable characteristics. Suppose then that we could map these indicators. 
The result would be a map showing degrees of urbanity distributed over space. There's a well-known saying that a woman can't be a little bit pregnant. Either she is or she isn't. But as regards the urban, one can indeed be a little bit urban, all the way to being fully urban, depending on the number of characteristics or the intensity of the urban that combine to produce the assemblages at particular localities. In some parts of the world, a few of these assemblages might even be called superorganisms, a term I borrow from biology, which are densely settled urban clusters, such as we find in the Pearl River Delta, outlined by Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and Macau, with over 70 million people, which are largely on autopilot. With such a map in hand, you could draw boundaries over this global scheme of the urban. Teilhard de Chardin, a famous anthropologist of the last century, called it the noosphere, which stands for the sphere of the human mind. So this is what I, what, what I, I call it, the scheme of the urban, which to define specific governmentalities, regions and zones, for whatever analytical purposes you have in mind. But your map would clearly reveal forms of urban intensification, which we conventionally call towns, cities, metro regions, or by similar designations, and of spatially extended urban phenomena that are linked to each other through lines of electronic communication and high-speed transportation, thus producing ever larger and more complex urban networks or systems. What I think we would see on such a map is that in most parts of the world, there are indeed very few areas today that are not already touched in some way by the urban. Or to put it otherwise, the rural, increasingly capitalized and inevitably drawn into the urban sphere through means of communication, thus comes to be gradually metamorphosed into the urban. Let me now take this line of reasoning a step further. In a personal communication, Neil Brenner suggests that the urban, however we choose to define it, constitutes a force field that could be further divided according to certain salient forces, such as the complex contours of economic, political, and cultural variables. It seems to me that force fields such as these would have proportionately inverse effects on ecology and the environment. So that we can say that the more intensively urban an assemblage at a given location, the greater will be its negative impact on air, water, land, and global resources, in short, on the planet's natural environment. Additionally, as a powerful and network force field, intensively urban areas tend to attract both population and capital, which, once converted into political and administrative power, seek to penetrate and to colonize 
areas both near and far, and the less articulated force fields because it requires them to strengthen and consolidate its power. But enough for now of the urban and its theorization. What I want to focus on today are precisely these contoured spaces of penetration and colonization that surround major urban concentrations, and which we call the peri-urban. As zones of encounter, the peri-urban can fall entirely within the realm of one or more administrative <coughs> urban regimes, or else show an admixture of urban and rural regimes of governmentality as defined by local conventions. In the rest of my talk, let me be geographically more specific. I will be talking primarily of East, Southeast, and South Asian regions that are, first, undergoing an accelerated process of becoming more intensively urban, and second, displaying relatively high population <coughs> densities, especially along seacoasts and major river valleys, densities of occupants that are equal to, if not higher, than typical North American suburbs. The boundaries that define these peri-urban zones are themselves dynamic and imprecise. On the near side, they shade off into local suburbias, on the far side into areas whose penetration by the urban is still relatively weak, though increasing over time. For simplicity's sake, I will refer to the high-intensity urban core as the city, but please remember that this designation is intended to serve as merely a symbolic expression for a space that has a very high overall intensity of agreed-upon assemblages of urban characteristics. As we all know, cities in Asia are now expanding at breathtaking rates in both population and land coverage. Millions of migrants are moving in from the countryside propelled by a search for a better life or opportunities, which they perceive as urban. As the city thus expands into the peri-urban, it comes into conflict with already densely occupied spaces in villages, towns, and secondary intensification of the urban such as urban satellites or new towns. The peri-urban zone is thus inevitably a zone of conflict and struggle, ostensibly over land, but at a deeper level, at a deeper level also over people's subsistence and livelihoods. It would be false, however, to cast this as just another moral tale with the hegemonic city colonizing the living fabric of the peri-urban. Generally speaking, villagers and townspeople on the city's periphery want to share in what they perceive as the promise of life in the urban center and its margins, where they can sell what they produce, find jobs, and where their children hope in a not too distant future to become fully fledged urbanize themselves. Yet at the same time, they also resist colonization and displacement 
from lands which give them a measure of security. Meanwhile, and despite local resistance, the urban force field of the city extends its reach ever outward into the peri-urban, particularly along major access roads. <clears throat> the city needs to safeguard its water supply. It needs land to dump its solid waste. It needs additional land for ports, airports, warehousing, all of which are space extensive. Harry, middle-class urbanites dream of recreation areas in the remaining pristine hills and forests surrounding the city. Special economic zones for export production are projected into the peri-urban, along with middle-class real estate ventures and luxury resorts, all of which require vast tracts of land. Some cities, such as Manila and Beijing, have banned noxious industries from their center, which now have no other choice and to find new locations in the peri-urban. And not least, many of the migrant workers who are drawn as if by a magnet to the city are settling on terrain bar of very ownership claims, putting up self-built housing where they can because there is no other place that could help them. The peri-urban zones then are not a tabula rasa or terra nullius in no man's in no one's land. In Asia, they are already densely settled inhabited spaces. The land cultivated and productive, sustaining the livelihood of multitudes. There are no extensive unclaimed tracts of open, unclaimed space in the peri-urban for the city to move into and consolidate its existence. Each new urban land claim encounters prior claims to land by squatters, peasant farmers, shanty dwellers, townsfolks, and already existing smaller concentrations of the urban whose livelihood is now at stake. Their titles to the land are often murky, but there is no question regarding their actual use claims on the land and the utilitarian values these claims have for them as spaces of production and social reproduction. The question then is, on whose terms will the resulting conflict of this encounter be resolved? And are there alternate forms of becoming urban to the ones that I've sketched? Whose vision of the future will prevail? To answer these questions, let me tell you a couple of stories. The first from Istanbul, the second, a more complex story from Rajasthan, India. Both deal with this possession. A recent article by Asu Aksoy of Istanbul Bilgi University tells us how this city of 15 million is being utterly changed according to an imaginary of the urban that has swept the world in a single-minded attempt to attract investments, promote globalized economic development, and so become modern. Supported by successive mayors of Istanbul, and now also by the central government, the aim of this imaginary 
is to wipe away the old and to replace it with the look of a particular form of glossy Western modernity to which the middle class and its ruling elites aspire and have done so for over a century. And now I quote uh, uh, a, a paragraph uh, from uh, this article by Maxwell. Every part of the city is exposed to radical change, he writes, as more and more land is being pulled into the market sphere, catapulting the whole of Istanbul into an irreversible process of large-scale urban development. In hegemonic circles, there is now a shared aspiration and vision of Istanbul as a globalized and gentrified city with monitored and orderly public spaces and residential zones with an attractive public image, world-class services, and with a cleaned-up heritage. The spatial politics of the city are governed by the needs of the new economy of consumption, tourism, recreation, and high-end services. As Istanbul now becomes fragmented into an archipelago of gated communities, residential complexes, recreational zones, and tourist areas, it ceases to be a real city and becomes simply an immense agglomeration of disparate zones and construction. That's the end of the quote. Of course, there is resistance as old neighborhoods are torn down and replaced by condominiums, malls, and sleep office towers designed by foreign architects. But Aksoy continues, and I quote again, maybe the most challenging of all is the complexity and diversity of dispositions among social actors and citizens of Istanbul. This may well be the Achilles heel of the civic democratic movement. Simply put, the growth paradigm promising increased urban rent is undermining the effective coalition. Growth rhetoric has become part of the political imperative to make Istanbul a global powerhouse. End of quote. This story brings to mind Schumpeter's famous phrase that inexorably capitalism is forever propelled forward by wave after wave of creative destruction. Innovation, competition, and ruthless entrepreneurial energy are central to this obsession with a form of economic growth that celebrates whatever is new, no matter its human and environmental costs, costs that tend to be treated as collateral damage, regrettable but unavoidable. History is bunk, declared Henry Ford a century ago. It has been melted down into the coin of profit. In his latter day view, capitalism seeks to transvalue all values but one the virtues of continuous accumulation. The global capitalist class of the super-rich has therefore been, raising, been raised to dizzying heights to which we are expected to bow down. Give me land, demand the global financiers, and land is given them along with the people who live on it and work the land. And to accomplish this expeditiously, the state has entered into a partnership with global capital 
for reasons one presumes of mutual benefit. There was a recent article in the New York Times which, based on research that they had done, shows, among other things, that local governments in um, the United States give away $80 billion a year with taxes <coughs> in the lead. My story comes from Rajasthan. My second story comes from Rajasthan in India. India is still predominantly a country of small farmers. Two-thirds of its people live off the land, supplementing their meager earnings with mostly unskilled non-farm work. And as Michael Levian tells it, significant sections of that peasantry remain for various reasons uninterested in selling it. Following the economic historian Karl Polanyi, he argues that, <clears throat> and I quote, land is a fictitious commodity not only because it is non-producible, <coughs> a non-producible asset with location-specific qualities, but also because it is valued in multiple ways, for example, as a habitation and a long-term source of security that are not readily reproducible, reducible to exchange value. Even where farmers would in principle like to exit agriculture, they are often reluctant to surrender land where non-farm opportunities appear unpromising. And to facilitate this process of dispossession, the government has stepped in to expropriate the land for what it declares to be a public purpose and then to lease it back to private developers of special economic zones, for instance, to build luxury housing, golf courses, hotels, and shopping malls. As Levian tells it, and I quote again, special economic zones thus complete the transition to a land broker state in which the chief economic function of state governments in India is to acquire land for unrestricted private capital accumulation, end of quote. Levin's case study is based on fieldwork in the grandly named Mahindra World City, a multi-purpose integrated industrial city in the peri-urban zone of Rajasthan's capital, Jaipur, which is slated to become the largest IT special economic zone in the country. In the early part of the millennium, the Jaipur Development Authority, acting as an agent of the state, acquired nine villages and 3,000 acres of land, of which 2,000 acres were privately owned farmland and 1,000 acres were common grazing land nominally owned by the government. The private properties were compensated at a price set by the authority, but no compensation was paid for the grazing land, which until then had sustained a livestock economy in the surrounding villages. Such cattle as there were had to be sold off at whatever price they could fetch. In the villages studied by Levian, land ownership varied according to caste, 
grouped into four broad categories. General caste, mostly Brahmin, Jap, a traditional land cultivating caste. Otherwise, backward castes and scheduled castes or tribes at the bottom. The starting position and average size of family land holdings was then as follows. And all of these figures are expressed in hectares. For the general caste, 4.6 hectares. For the Jats, 7.3 hectares. 3.0 for the otherwise backward caste, and 2.2 hectares for the um, um, scheduled caste and, and tribes. Although the scheduled caste and tribes made up 35% of the sample population, 35%, they owned only 15% of the land. They were also the least educated and economically most vulnerable part of the population. 15% of them were landless, and by contrast, the, the, uh, the Jap caste families comprising 17% of, of all households owned about a third of all village land. So you see a certain inequality, of course, from the beginning, um, but it gets worse. Official compensation maintained this initial position of economic inequality. Land-holding households received the basic compensation according to the amount of land they own. In addition, however, they also received back a quarter of the land they had given up in quantity, though not necessarily land they had previously cultivated, to do with it as they saw fit. In the land rush that ensued, speculative buyers converged upon the nine villages from distant locations to buy up these parcels of land conveniently located on the edge of the special economic zone, and those households that had the greatest need for cash, the scheduled caste and tribes, were the first to sell their land at the lowest prices on offer, while those with greater ability to hold off sales as the special economic zone came to be built <coughs> were able to benefit from ever-escalating prices that surged from $16,000 per hectare in 2003 to $280,000 in some areas some five years later. Existing economic inequality, but that's not merely reproduced, inequality actually increased and increased further as those with better networks and more education, the higher caste, put their money to work in a variety of activities, from paying off debts, constructing housing, digging wells, buying up properties in more distant places, or starting small business ventures, a form of, in, of agrarian involution, according to Levian. Also notable is the number of households who now had less food on the table, 75% of the lowest, most numerous castes, the vast majority of whom had sold the compensation plot at the time of Levian's survey, claimed that they now had less food to eat. In short, they had been reduced to penury and were now going hungry. By contrast, among the Jap, who at the time of research still sat on 75% of the compensation plots, 
only 25% reported having less food. Still, hunger is hunger. And half the dispossessed peasantry claim to have less food to eat now that they no longer farm their own land or have cattle to graze. I have stylized this story somewhat to illustrate the effects that creative destruction can have on farming communities in peri-urban India. With appropriate variations, it is a story that could be multiplied the length and breadth of the Indian Federation with its 1.2 billion people, of whom roughly two-thirds are still tied to the land. The destruction is clear in terms of human lives. Its effects on the environment are devastating. Both, however, are typically treated as collateral damage of global accumulation in a race for worlding Asian cities. I'm not saying that all peasant farmers are victims and that they have no means of creatively responding to the circumstances that confront them. But the old ways of life and livelihood are being sacrificed for the glittering promise of the youth. So what, if anything, is to be done? To move what are now considered regrettable if unavoidable side effects of economic growth into the center of attention would, of course, dramatically change the perspective. No longer would we then automatically buy into the capitalist utopia of cumulative growth forever, no longer accept the erasure of history and place, no longer embrace competition as if cooperation were not also vital to the human enterprise and perhaps the more important part. And finally, to get rid of the bizarre notion that at the end of the day, the only values that matter are those to which a dollar sign can be attached. All this is easy enough to say. But to what practically effect? Those of us who are Westerners, and even though we might imagine ourselves as global citizens, <coughs> hold no sway over, Indians, over India's government or China's or Turkey's. We also know that the ideology and rhetoric of capitalism in its extreme neoliberal version is essentially an Anglo-American invention that strikes close to home. We Canadians, Americans, and Europeans have been its victims, much as the peasantry on the outskirts of Mahindra World City or the migrant workers and modest citizens of globalizing Istanbul, for whom there is no place in the city's official imaginary. My argument is therefore that the struggle for another city, a city that is inclusive and ecologically sustainable, must, in the first instance, become our own struggle to be waged primarily at home, by which I mean the West in this case. And if the urban imaginary in much of Asia today is borrowed from the West, even though it is destructive of human lives and history and place, then changing that imaginary in the heavily urbanized West where it all started, and pointing to the possibilities of other ways of becoming urban, may inspire civic movements in Asia that stress endogenous values of what it might mean to be urban in this century. There are some signs that this may already be happening. 
the Indian writer Pankaj Mishra closes his new book from the ruins of empire with these words that I quote. The hope that fuels the pursuit of endless economic growth, that billions of consumers in India and China will one day enjoy the lifestyles of Europeans and Americans is as absurd and dangerous a fantasy as anything dreamed of by Al-Qaeda. It condemns the global environment to early destruction and looks to create reservoirs of nihilistic rage and disappointment among hundreds of millions of have-nots. The bitter outcome of Western modernity, which turns the revenge of the East into something darkly ambiguous and all its victories truly pyrrhic. These words are taken, are aimed directly at us here in the West. To conclude then, I would like to share with you some reflections on these stories and what I think they imply for our research as scholars coming from the West. I ended on what some of you might regard a nihilistic note, expressing my skepticism concerning our ability as outsiders to suggest ways of how to confront becoming urban in the countries of Asia where these processes are currently rampant. Let me therefore summarize my thoughts. First, although I've argued that scholars from the West are powerless to change what happens in regions of the world where we conduct our research, the work we do is nonetheless important, I believe, because we act as public witnesses to processes that, unless they are checked, will continue to cause human pain and suffering. And not only in the places where they are felt immediately, but in far-flung places around the globe. Although we are outsiders, our voices matter. They are the voices of records. On the other hand, scholars indigenous to countries in Asia, whether schooled abroad or not, are insiders and therefore have a legitimate right and as citizens indeed an obligation to participate in local debates on policy in the countries of their birth. Second, the authorial self and how we position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the phenomena observed matters and does so for several reasons. The old belief in the possibilities of value-free objective social research was clearly in error. <coughs> to present the stark reality of things, either we are with a few who command power or with the many who are powerless and whose rights as human beings are being violated by the juggernaut of the city. By exposing social wrongs, we declare ourselves in solidarity with those who are wrong. In public displays of solidarity, we strengthen those who are resisting. Third, as public witnesses, to observe differences of time and place matter. Becoming urban may be the general descriptive term, but what is important resides in the details the specific actors and institutional settings involved, the hows and whys of converging and diverging processes of the phenomena examined. All these help to evoke and to explain reality, 
to avoid the phrase from becoming a cliché, it is always the specificities that bring phenomena to life. Fourth, comparative research is important because it is in the context of multiple comparisons that specific differences of similar processes can be identified and reliable interpretations can be made. Similar results may have different causes, while similar causes may have diverging outcomes. None of this becomes evident so long as we focus on only single case studies, neglecting to draw comparisons. Fifth and finally, as urban scholars, we need to have clear understanding of the urban in its multiple meanings, spatial configurations, and forms of governance. The urban is not a particular <coughs> place, but the global meta-process of continual change. As the context of specific stories of becoming urban, this meta-process is a theoretical construct concerning the larger operative forces that frame the phenomena we undertake to study. Thank you. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. The Vancouver Queer Film Festival marks 25 years of celebrating queer lives this August 15th to 25th. Featuring over 70 films from 20 countries, from Hollywood to Bollywood, drama to documentary, indie cinema to big-budget offerings, there's something for everyone. Tickets on sale July 22nd. For parties, previews, tickets, and more, visit queerfilmfestival.ca. East Van Pillow Fight Club 10, Queen of the Down, an all-girl pillow fighting event live at the Astoria August 24th. Brought to you by Lotus Land Tattoo Shop, featuring eight seasoned fighters, two rookies, and East Van Pillow Fight Club champ Serbian Scrambler. Proceeds support Vancouver Rape Relief. Tickets available at St. Regis Bar and Grill or online at evpfc.com. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And you're hearing from honorary professor uh, John Friedman from uh, the School of Community and Regional Planning at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, Canada, also Professor Emeritus at the School of Public Policy and so- Social Research at UCLA. And he was speaking um, at the inaugural uh, uh, seminar panel on uh, entitled uh, Becoming Urban in Asia. And if you missed any uh, portion of that, you can check that out at thecityfm.org. And uh, again, uh, past podcasts, uh, the full archive and links uh, to where you can download them and you can automatically subscribe um, to the program uh, through iTunes um, through the website. Again, that's www.thecityfm.org. 
We're going to go out with a track from the Ballantines, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this is The City, um, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and you can catch it live here on CITR 5 to 6 p.m. on Tuesdays and syndicated on CJSF uh, from uh, 10 to 11 a.m. on Fridays. We're going to go to that track uh, now, but uh, uh, we've got more coming your way next week, so tune in um, again. This is The City. Um, I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for being with me. Stop.